Welcome to another episode of SharkBites.net, where we delve into issues of tech leadership in the public sector. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts or simply go to SharkBites.net. Here now is our host, Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute, now a division of Fusion Learning Partners. Hi there, everyone. This is Alan Shark, and welcome to another episode of SharkBytes.net. As we explore leadership in technology in the public sector. And as you know, every once in a while, we kind of take some side roads and explore things that may be of curiosity, but not necessarily in the mainstream. I recently had the pleasure of meeting Lorena Jordan, uh, who is the librarian for the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. I was really impressed, and it made me think about the role of the librarian in today's information technology environment where students, in many cases, don't read, um, and fearfully, they may not even think the way we'd like or they may have done in the past. So, Loren, I've set things up. Welcome to the program. Hi, welcome. Thanks for letting me come. Yeah. So, we always start with uh, asking a simple question. How did you get into library, library sciences? I mean, you have an amazing background uh, at the University of South Carolina. You have a Master of Library and Information Services, Sciences rather. Um, but as a kid, I mean, what inspired you? What made you go in the direction that you did? I actually think as I've gotten older and found old family artifacts and photos of information, I think it was meant to be from childhood. I found and put on my Instagram a photo I took of a mini book. I used to have mini books as a child. I used to read like Bernstein Bears and then growing up to Anna Green Gables and all the other different levels. But I found in the back of a book um, and a handmade library card that you would have seen back in the day when they had library cards and books. So you would check out with your date and then, you know, the return date. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it was meant to be destiny from the beginning, but what really got me into libraries, I've always enjoyed as a child. To me, my home library in Charleston was the biggest, largest Charleston-based um, and world-based library you could ever find. Of course, as a child, you think it's all huge. And I used to love the thrill of finding things where they were located in the catalog, especially for my, my parents. So I am not surprised the older I get that I've taken into this, this path of librarianship. Cool. So, you know, the role is changing, obviously. I remember when I was, uh, before coming to George Mason, and I, I also teach at the Shar School, um, I remember being at Rutgers, and I did a project involving libraries, uh, the city libraries in the city of Newark, New Jersey. And I was surprised because uh, the books were idle. I mean, they probably needed to be dusted. and No one was checking out books, but they were checking out the computer terminals. Um, they were in some of these little classrooms that were part of the library, learning how to write a resume, how to use online services and the like. So clearly, the role of the librarian, especially in the college setting, is changing. And so over the years, what have you seen as being the biggest changes? Yeah, and I can attest to that even more so because this is my first not only faculty appointment, but librarian role appointment. Beforehand, I had previous experience in colleges on the staff 
side of the equation. And because of that, I got to have more direct line of access to students and student requests and services from researching. And so it definitely has become more technology-based. Students are obviously looking for things. They're looking for things in a more instant fashion because they have become used to the Google world of finding things, even more so finding things with like abstract ideas or keywords, say, book about teenage wizard from England and they can find Harry Potter. Whereas in the library catalog, it's not naturally conducive to that. And so it's become seeing their research needs being requested more instantly, but also online as well too. Even before the pandemic, students obviously enjoy the flexibility being able to do school online as well as classes online, but that became critical and the method du jour during the pandemic. And so now we're seeing a return to campus and a return to physical services, but some things have to remain virtual, some things prefer to remain virtual. So it's becoming accommodating the student needs as they can um, handle and request them for their scheduled needs too. Even more so for SHAR because I served a SHAR undergraduate and graduate student body. And of course, there was many non-traditional students, those who were coming back and have a various set schedules. Most of them even work nine to five and then they come to classes up to five, six hours in the evening. And so it's adjusting services that are critical and always have been there to accommodate that new reality of the 21st century. So what I find interesting is you have made it clear to the faculty that you're available to come to class and actually present and let students know what kind of services that they can take advantage of. But you also have virtual office hours, correct? I do. Every week. So I try to advertise to the students just as you and other professors have those times that you put on your syllabus where you will basically be focusing on any and all student queries that come. I'm doing the same. So students are always welcome to make a reservation with me for an appointment. They can always email me and say, hi, I have a crisis with my research. Can we maybe try to meet and I can try to squeeze you in? But those hours, again, are me generally in front of my computer, maybe checking email, other things like that, but waiting for students because it's been wonderful to sort of put that stake in the ground, so to speak, of I will be here for you for sure at these times. And I get between two to three students each week that are coming for research during those hours, minimum. I'm assuming those students are probably more prone to be master level or graduate level students, doctoral students. Um, For the most part, but there's also some, it's upper level still, but there are some undergraduate students who are coming for services too. Um, there are some that I went to a class and they kept that notation. There's some that have found me. And even a very simple technological innovation that we have, email signatures, which has been around for a long time, but I have it in my email signature. I have virtual office hours from this time to this time on Thursdays. And I think that's even helped to get more traction and notice. So a very simple, dare I say, AI-based, because it's automatically doing it, <laughs> service for students to find a way to reach me that has my direct Zoom link as well. So this is going to date me, but I have to ask the question, do people check out books, physical books anymore? Actually, they do. Now, it's okay. not as popular as an ebook per se. Um, there's that growing as well, the electronic access of books, especially textbooks as well. So if you're talking about a physical book, it's not as frequent, but when you add online book versions of materials, 
it's probably more than people are thinking. And it's even more so because there are services such as interlibrary loan. And we work with other universities around the area, the um, DC area for the WRLC, which is the Washington Research Library Consortium, where we share materials, share access. So students are requesting things that we may not have, or as often as the case we may have has already been checked out from another institution at no additional cost to them to get access to materials. So uh, George Mason University has over 10 schools. So I assume the resources you have available to you and thus students goes beyond just the Shar School. Is that correct? It does, yes, because you also have, for example, the Carter School of International Conflict, for example, um, very similar ideas as far as if, if both are studying the war in Ukraine, then you both need that resource, for example. So we do offer that as a result of that. And one of the things I try to emphasize more and more now is, for example, if I go to um, students in the Shars graduate program, they mostly meet at the Mason Square campus. And so I tell them, if you see a book and it says it's at Fenwick, don't be afraid of that. Request it and it can come from Fenwick to you. Because many students that say go to Fenwick and Fairfax Library campuses, um, services, they tend to live around the area of Fairfax, right? And it's the same for those at Mason Square and Arlington. So it's keeping the services moving within the, the whole campus itself and all the schools and programs so that they can all have equitable access. Cool. So you used those magic two words earlier in this conversation, AI. And I've spent quite a bit of time and continue to spend time in a tremendous amount of interest. You know, it just seems that in particular, generative AI just seemed to come out of nowhere in March of 2023. It was around that time frame. And what I find interesting is one of the first faculty meetings I can recall um, where there was real animation was a discussion of how generative AI might impact uh, teaching and learning. And so when you and I met, it, it, it occurred to me, um, AI is going to change the library. Uh, it's not going to change your job because I think there's got to be an information science professional uh, that can help navigate, curate, and the like. So I think you're good. Um, what is your thoughts here? Because I, and I'll just set this up for you. I mean, we had people saying we we have to ban it. Um, we we want to discourage students from using it because the potential of cheating is far too great. The potential for um, letting something let letting ChatGPT do the work that they should be doing, and therefore they're not getting what is expected out of the course in terms of critical individual thinking. Um, I had a class the other night, and somebody asked me again, "Are you sure it's okay for us to use ChatGPT?" And I said, "Yes." And I said, "Why?" He said, "Because you're the only professor." And I was surprised, as as you know, it's really up at this point up to each professor to kind of lay out the the law of the class. And I think it's great. I say two things: one, beware of plagiarism, and number two, beware of inaccuracies. And but then on the other hand, I say, play with it, experiment. It can help you develop an outline. So when you think of what you do and what you know of, you know, generative AI, what do you think the impact is uh, to the library first? And we'll get into a little deeper. But generally speaking, is that something that concerns you? You embrace it a little bit of both. Well, first, I have to say that whenever you want to retire as a professor, you're welcome to come to library science school and join us in the libraries, because I would think many share your sentiment of openness to discuss and um, 
maybe not embrace, but at least determine what's good or bad and how it will be used in the future. That's the important first step. And I recall in a recent interview, David Lankies, who used to be director of my alma mater, University of South Carolina, and he mentioned that about every 10 or so years now, he, he feels that librarians feel like we have to deal with an existential crisis of what's going to happen with education and research and will librarians still be here and be in person? Um, you think going back from like, say, fax and email to um Wikipedia was a huge one, for example. And then, of course, now not just generative AI, but chat GPT and also accessibility and all that. Well, so librarians and libraries have always been adapting to technology and hearing the sort of the world is out of end. But of course, it's not really. And to that end, what I would say interests me about the whole ChatGPT situation with AI is everyone is easily equating ChatGPT to AI and that they're one and the same and that there's nothing to AI but ChatGPT. And I caution people to, first of all, realize that we have been using artificial intelligence more and more over the decades and the years. And it's actually present in a lot of operations and services. Um, of course, being the SHAR librarian, I've focused on government and policy. There is a website called AI.gov by the White House, mm -hmm. and they talk about government use of AI, and they give you a list that I saw as of our talking today. It's over 700 government uses of AI in government applications and programs. And of course, the one that interested me, being a student debt borrower and debt um, holder at this time, was the Department of Education. They are using the Aiden chatbot to help answer student aid queries about um, financial aid, for example. And I believe the statistic as of today was over 2 million questions asked in two years. So AI, I do think, is here and has a presence. And as far as the libraries go, one of the concerns that we always worry about with libraries is, of course, information literacy. They created a framework for library information literacy that was released back in 2016, which, of course, as all good documents like our Constitution and other things, is a living, breathing documentation that always will be reviewed and maybe changed as time goes on and, and we change our um need and services, but it's the idea of this is how we want to me measure how students are learning library services, but also information literacy, how they can receive information, express information, and generate it in a fair and equitable manner. And so to that end, what I think a lot of libraries are considering with chat GPT at this point going forward is, yes, there is some concern about plagiarism. There is this point of how much work is your work, how much work is the chat GPT, where is the line end? For example, there's an organization called LILI, which is Lifelong Information Literacy. And they did a wonderful presentation recently on YouTube about academic library instruction, you, um, excuse me, using ChatGPT to engage in library instruction. And there's this wonderful infographic that basically shows an arrow going from the bottom being completely 100% student created all the way to the top of AI did all of this, no student input and different levels about what a student has done and where could the line be between plagiarism and cheating. And that's something that we have to think about going forward with that as well too. So that's going to be a discussion in the future. And you know, I'm one librarian, 
in one branch of one university. But there's going to be lots of discussion about from presidential level where President Biden has released the AI um, executive order. Governor Youngkin in our state of Virginia released Virginia order to review AI down the universities, down to us about where we're going to go and where things stand with that. But what I think I get more interested about more and is more of a concern for me, basically, is that companies are racing against each other to implement the generative AI and the functionalities that you can do. And so I feel like technology is not always ready for that. And generative AI allows the system to respond to users' queries in its own words. So almost as if it's summarizing and creating a topic for you. But really at its heart, it's just guessing. It's a language learning model and it's trained on huge amounts of content. And even content at times from like Wikipedia or Reddit. So it's not always reliable, accurate, useful information. And so because they're trained to give you an answer, no matter what, they sometimes can produce incorrect information and just completely fake information as well, too. One thing librarians try to show students, and I'll stop for a minute after this, is that ChatGPT can just com completely out of nowhere make citations that are just not even existent. One example I can tell you basically um, was an article from 2008 that claimed existed called Increasing access to sterile injecting equipment and syringe exchange in a rural area from the Australian Journal of Rural Health. And this article was describing supposedly a study conducted in Australia with high prevalence of bloodborne viruses, but it didn't exist. The summary sounded plausible, the citation looked realistic. That article does not exist. The article's author exists, but they did not publish in that journal. So that is a huge thing that we're trying to encourage students is to be careful, learn what you can do in class and learn to, to go behind, if you will, and see what ChatGPT is really showing you. Music to my ears, Lorena. I have to tell you that in an earlier podcast, uh, I interviewed ChatGPT and I went text to voice. So you can actually hear it. And I asked, what does it know about me? And 50% was totally right. And 50% was totally wrong. Totally, totally, totally fabricated. Um, but it looked right. It looked real. And so I wrote back. I said, I talked to her. I said, you know, you have a lot right, but you have a lot wrong. And it apologized, said, I'm sorry. I'm new. I'm still learning. Okay. And it then went on to say, if you'd be so kind as to update me with the areas in which I got wrong, I'll be happy to incorporate that. I thought about it, and that night I, I wrote a paragraph correcting all this. I submitted it. I waited three days, and then when it came back, um, it had 50% of new things that were totally right and 50% really wrong stuff. So what I've asked my class to do is to, um, instead of Googling themselves, I tell them, chat GPT themselves and see what comes up because I want them to see what happens when things look right when you know for a fact it's wrong? And so your point is well taken. I have heard many examples of poor citations. Uh, so I have two more questions. I mean, one is if someone is using ChatGPT, I remember I use it as a tool to help me in some of my projects. Um, I remember early on asking, can you give me the sources of this information? And it said, no, because I'm getting it from all these different places. So 
Is there a rule of thumb that you're kind of thinking about? How does a student cite something that's coming from ChatGPT? As far as the article itself, I try to tell students to use the article citation. So to actually go and cite the actual article itself. Uh, we are still having debates on how to cite ChatGPT at this time. And what it basically boils down to is, as you said, ChatGPT by students may be used as a source, like, for example, Google Scholar. But again, how much of a reliable source is it? Because it's just trying to input information as it comes and as it makes it up. Like it's just thinking one word after the next. So I always tell students to look for articles on their own individually to make sure that they are legitimate and then to cite them as they go with the actual article itself. Oh, I can completely agree with you, but I can see a situation where you might uh, ask ChatGPT to give you the four major whatevers of a particular subtopic. And it comes mm -hmm. out and it all makes sense. There is no way to figure out where that came from. Mm -hmm. um, so they could either use that to search further or I'm starting to think, and I guess this is all new territory for us, mm -hmm. that maybe they put in source chat GPT retrieved the date of, you know, to at least show the professor or whoever, the publisher, if it's a book, where this stuff came from, because that's something that's scary to me. It can be. And like, for example, I know that there was a time where, excuse me, um, I know there was a case when a university as a demonstration was showing how to do ChatGPT in APA format for students and had on their information how mm -hmm. to do it. And ChatGPT's response was, as an AI language model, I don't have an established APC, APA citation season for my answers. However, a suggested way to cite this would be as follows. So it tends to seem to want to give back information as yeah. you would get it online. So I think you're, you're right as far as citing chat GPT is still very tentative. I have mm -hmm. heard and seen people try to quote it as a personal conversation or like an interview per se. Mm -hmm. um, and I might be able to see how that could apply. Yeah. One thing I would recommend students and I always do is I always tell them to just talk with your professor, especially because many professors are learning as they go these information and with the technology as well and see what they think about it have a conversation maybe bring it up on the first day of class to see where they stand and what they think would be good for chat gpt because it's such a new and novel innovation and i can see where press is going to be saying well, where did you get it from like for example there was that famous legal case in aviation where the lawyers completely used chat gpt for all their case citations and eventually they just had to come out and say, look, we, we got the information from ChatGPT. We thought they were legitimate sources and they sure. weren't. But also they used ChatGPT to you know, produce the reports and produce legal cases to summarize their arguments. So that is going to be something to constantly, I say, to speak with your professor and maybe show them examples too. Yeah. This is what it gave me. What do you think? I just always want to know the source. You know, when I read a student's paper, the most important thing is I want them to be honest. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd rather have him say, yeah, I got this from ChatGPT and not penalize him for it. So that's just my philosophy. But your your point is well taken. I think different professors, based on the topics, may have you know different takes on this. And we're still, as you point out, learning. I'm still learning. Which leads me to another question. You are the purveyor of, of, of information and books and all sorts of resources. One of the 
I think quandaries of all of this is what is the future of copyright? Because suddenly we have so many people who depend on certain income from all the work that they've done, all the intellectual property, and somehow this is now, you know, working its way into a, a public domain, whether openly or not. And this is kind of disturbing. As you know, the U.S. Copyright Office has launched somewhat of an investigation. I don't know how serious. I know there's a bunch of court cases, but what is your take on that? And I think it's very interesting, too. I read recently in The Guardian that OpenAI is offering to pay uh, some copyright lawsuits um, coverage, but also for future case, potentially just paying for the copyright access to material, realizing that people are using um, ChatGPT not only to use it, but also to source it and also have it as a credible source. I think that's going to be interesting to go forward to see if that goes through. And at times, you know, it could seem as if it could be subject to copyright protection, but it's going to be dependent upon many things. Again, figuring out who is the source of information, because as you said, professors, for example, publish, students publish, and they publish in journals, whether it's open access or a more traditional format, and they want to have the copyright. They want to have the publishing um, information and all that as well, and regenerating it on ChatGPT could bring questions of fair use, of copyright infringement, um, especially if, for example, they're misquoting somebody. I would say yeah. if I was being considered for writing an article that I didn't write, and then someone tries to quote me, I would basically be livid, to put it a different way. And I think one of the ways we're going to find the answer for this is with future government policy directives. I know we've talked about executive orders right now. We're talking about the government orders. I think also to those who basically are in charge of um, publishing, we'll be making decisions about that going forward too. I do note that one thing ChatGPT seems to be doing more of is the disclaimer of like, I'm a language system. I'm not a reliable source. And I think that's a very smart way to go forward too, because it, again, ChatGPT has brought some great um, results for students, especially. I know many students that are ESOL learners, and they mm -hmm. have definitely enjoyed it to practice assignments, to practice interviews, because again, yes, they speak English great, but it's not their first language. I speak Japanese, and it's not my first language. So I don't have the ability to practice and to slow things down before presenting. So there are good things going on forward for ChatGPT, I think it all boils down to what do we want to do with this and how are we going to regulate it and at what levels for everyone's future success and cooperation. Well, I think we're going to leave it at that. Lorena Jordan, so nice to have you with us. The uh, Shar School of Policy and Government are very lucky to have you. Um, <laughs> it would be interesting for you and I to kind of catch up, you know, six months, a year from now, because this is a fast moving target. It fascinates me, but I am a strong supporter of libraries and the work that you do. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. These are indeed fascinating times when we talk about libraries, especially in the college setting and artificial intelligence and its potential impact. We've had a great conversation with Lorena Jordan, who is policy and government librarian uh, for the uh, George Mason's Star School of Policy and Government. So if you have a story that you'd like to share, by all means, let us know at sharkbites.net. We love to consider you for a possible podcast. 
or you might have an idea or suggest somebody that might be good to uh, be interviewed, just let us know. And as I always conclude these episodes, please be safe both digitally and personally. You've been listening to another episode of SharkBites.net. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts or simply go to SharkBites.net. And if you or someone you know has a story to tell, please let us know.